everyone, welcome to episode nine now of DevOps Squared. Um, given the subjects that we've been talking about and, and discussed so far, this feels like a really good time to talk about DevOps in the enterprise. So I know this is a, a, a subject which brings up a lot of questions from a, a, a lot of people. And certainly when you look at some of the discussions people have online, um, it's certainly something that a lot of people want to know more about and there's various different angles that people approach this from and um, but given we've covered some good ground so far in, in uh, some different subjects with people it feels like a good time to scale the discussion up to an, an enterprise level somewhat so this week uh, really pleased to be joined by uh, Nick Whitaker who's the head of platform engineering and DevOps at uh, Atlantic and um, so just before we get started Welcome, Nick. Why don't you just give us a, a little intro about yourself and your career so far? Hey, Martin. Um, how you doing? <laughs> Good, thank you. <laughs> the episode nine. Wow. Um, I need to catch up. I, I, I think I'm, I'm only halfway through. Uh, <laughs> you are storming ahead. Um, so, so yeah, uh, uh, I'm Nick Whitaker. I'm, as you said, I'm head of platform engineering and DevOps at, at Virgin Atlantic uh, currently. Um, uh, I guess in in uh, in the uh, in full disclosure, uh, it's worth noting that that I have the pleasure of working with you uh, at the moment um, at Virgin Atlantic. Um, so that's how we know each other. Um, I've been uh, with that organisation for around six years um, and I've moved through a, a, a few roles. I, I joined there as a, a technical and solutions architect, um, primarily in uh, the digital space. Um, so uh, architecting um, some fairly significant changes um, in our digital facing technologies and, and being uh, part of what at the time was Virgin Atlantic's biggest ever technical transformation delivery, um, which was a huge uh, multi-year waterfall, big bang deployment with all the joy that that brings. Uh, I then moved into more of a, an operational management role, uh, running a bunch of our technology operations teams, uh, crew logistics, um, our uh, engineering system support teams, um, and a number of other ones. Um, and then um, it, more recently uh, into my current role, where um, I've had um, both uh, some of our in-house technology delivery teams, our quality assurance, our release management, um, and also um, handling uh, our third-party system integrator and supplier deliveries um, and building out kind of from, from ground zero, if you like, the beginnings and the progression of something that looks a bit like DevOps um, over the course of the last three years up until very recent uh, point in time where we finally transitioned to something that looked like big room planning um, at the portfolio level across the enterprise. So it's been quite a journey in those six years. Yeah, it's, uh, uh, what a lot of people I think uh, don't understand is they'll think, oh, technology, six years, it's quite a long time. But actually, when you come from a waterfall background, spend six years getting to a specific point, it's quite a lot of work, quite hearts and minds, quite a lot of culture change to be able to get to that point. Uh, and I, I actually think from my experience that six years is not really that long a time to make that many wholesale 
opportunities overall. Well, I, 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 and actually, mine. I think I think you, you, you've been generous even then because um, although you know my journey at, at Virgin Atlantic has been six years, um, the, the piece around the DevOps transformation journey has probably been really the last three. And during that time, um, you know, it hasn't felt like we've come very far. It, 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 it's been a, a long, slow grind. And if anything, it, it felt like we've gone the long way around and learned, you know, every lesson about how not to do it <laughs> at every juncture all the way. But of course, you know, when, when you turn around and, and look behind you, that's probably often, you know, the best way to come because it's only through those, those well, the failures, obviously, that, that we learn how to improve. And we've certainly done, I've certainly done a, a lot of that. It's been a hell of a journey. I, it's also worth noting that although when we look back behind us, we, we have come a long way and, and you know where we are on that journey yourself because you've been part of it during the last year. Um, in fact, you know, we've only actually converted maybe 20% of our portfolio deliveries to being, you know, kind of consistent, agile, DevOps, um, lean. Most of deliveries are, are still happening in a, if you like, a, a, a traditional way, um, if I could use that word without being, you know, pejorative. <laughs> um, but that's okay because even those initiatives have still been able to benefit from, you know, loads of those lessons learned. So, you know, you, you can go on a journey and it doesn't, you know, the end point um, doesn't necessarily look like everything suddenly being agile or DevOps or SRA. You can only have, you know, some of your deliveries working in that way and other deliveries working in a more traditional way. It's about whether they're making point improvements. Um, you know, there's no reason why every waterfall project shouldn't be automating their testing, for instance, um, and regularly reporting up their metrics uh, every two weeks, and so on and so forth. So, so we've been careful to do a lot of that stuff um, without trying to boil the ocean. There's no way we could we could turn a, a multi-million pound delivery portfolio entirely away from, you know, waterfall into something that looks more um, iterative and incremental and, 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 and outcome focused. But there are things you can do in those kinds of deliveries that help you improve. And it's percentage gains for me is the, is the more important thing, you know, because you're never going to get that 100% transition. There's always something, um, you know, the goalposts will always move. And there's always some kind of curveball that, that takes your legs out from underneath you. Um, I think we all know what that means in the current context. Obviously, um, especially being in an airline um, that is really at the, the front edge uh, and and uh, in an industry that was the first to feel the impacts of this, you know, flipping virus that's that's hit us all from sideways. So, um, you know, yes, uh, a very, very long journey um, with, you know, lots of uphill climbing. You know, and it's all about incremental and percentage gains, you know, um, I've certainly not got to, uh, you know, a nirvana of a, of a, of a perfect end state, nor do I anticipate that this organisation or, or most organisations should ever reasonably expect to do that. I don't think that's what it's about. Yeah, this is it's actually one of the things that I've talked about with some earlier guests as well, is that um, quite, quite a lot of people I get to speak to at conferences say, um, especially leaders actually say, oh, well, so, so when is DevOps done? <laughs> well, it's never done. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, if you're lucky enough to uh, 
be running that transformation project to, to turn your cells into DevOps and do a good job of it, then you're, you're there for a long time, hopefully, because, um, yeah, you, you pick up from what you've done earlier, you improve, you learn, and the cycle goes round and off you go again. And you just keep doing that. So, you know, when, when people say, well, you know, we've set some aside six months, a year's worth of budget to help with this, it's like, yeah, you're, you're going to need a lot longer than <laughs> Than a year. Yeah, well, um, I mean, the, the, clues, the clues in those two little words, continuous improvement, right? Uh, yeah. And if you think you've nailed it, then uh, <laughs> I question whether you, you really know your onions. So. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Um, so let's um, let's crack on with going through some some uh, uh, the points that we've uh, got to discuss. So um, I guess the first thing is the, the thing that's the same for, for everyone. Uh, which is, what does DevOps mean to you? I was dreading this first question, uh, although there have been some fantastic answers on the, on the previous podcasts. Uh, well, um, it's a word that's used to oversimplify a problem. Uh, and uh, the problem is, you know, one of legacy silos of organization, uh, behavior, uh, and tooling in the delivery value chain, um, usually due to Conway's law. Um, it's, you know, DevOps is waived as, uh, as the solution to a bunch of, of these things. But, but in my mind, it's just one component of a, of a more holistic solution. Um, so, you know, if we think about something you've talked about in previous podcasts, um, culture, people, process, uh, and technology, uh, I think there's a number of elements. You've got uh, agility within teams. Um, uh, and this is this idea that, a team can uh, optimize to allow it to react to feedback um, and pivot and tack, um, change its course. Um, uh, and, you know, and, you know, that, that, that has all the, the connotations about, um, about um, being clear on your, your, your commit um, and only dealing with that commit um, and the idea of a definition of done and moving in iterations and sprints and all that kind of stuff. And that, that's great. But of course, you can be as agile as you like in a team. Um, but if you're having then to hand off to a, a traditional or dare I say legacy run function, um, then all those you know optimization gains are really for nothing because you could be you know stuck in a, a six-week queue to get a firewall change or release a thing into a run and so on. So you know, agile on itself isn't the solution, but clearly it's part of the solution. You've then got lean, which is um, how you deal with those interactions between multiple teams in that delivery value chain. And all of those teams themselves could all be super optimized to be agile. But unless you're looking at the frictions between those handoffs and the differences and, and mismatch uh, in process expectations and interfaces and so on, then again, um, you're, you're never going to optimize. And what Lean gives you um, that agile doesn't necessarily on its own is the view of, of all that that hidden work um, between and across those interfaces and this idea that until and unless you've addressed the slowest thing in your chain, uh, you, you know, in your delivery chain, again, you're, you're wasting your time. Um, and then if you like, the third component of the overall solution is, is the DevOps piece. And that's where you're supporting the interactions between teams and providing, if you like, a, a, te a, a technical conveyor belt to support the flow of information 
for those interactions across those in- interfaces between those teams as, as exposed by applying lean to the agile teams. And then above the DevOps layer, you've got, you know, this, this more recent, um, thinking around flow, um, you know, um, and that, that's could be both flow in terms of, um, and metrics and indicators within the value stream itself, but also that, that more enterprise-centered view of flow that thinks around um, the, the value that's derived from the thing that's going across the conveyor belt and, and the outcomes um, that, that then come back and inform the pivot and change in the agile teams. So in other, in other words, uh, the flow piece describes um, doing the right things at the right time to generate the best and right values and and outcomes. And then above that, you've got everything being managed up at, if you like, enterprise level, um, where you've got people like interest groups like the, the PMO and finance and procurement and contracts and all those kind of people um, um, using maybe, a, you know, something that looks a bit like safe or some other common language to provide that, that window in. So there's a bunch of layers that give you the overall solution um, and, um, you know, they they are fairly granular. I think the difference with the DevOps piece is it's both, um, you know, uh, transverse and, uh, you know, um, side to side and top to bottom because it has a view across the entire chain, but obviously is quite focused on the technical and the behaviours as they relate to the technical pieces. Um, so, you know, that's what it means to me. If I, if I could be a bit more visceral about it, um, uh, you know, uh, you can have any one of those components on their own, um, you know, and, and effectively you've just got jelly on a plate. You really need all of them together to have, you know, underpinned by DevOps to have anything that looks like Frankenstein's monster, you know. Yeah. Yeah, no, definitely. And I, I, <laughs> I mean, this is, I can't, I can't remember off the top of my head when I really realised this, but even though, so one of the things, and, and we actually started to, to do this uh, late last year, early this year, I, I guess, with uh, some of the operational teams to try and get them out of their usual ways of working and into this DevOps cycle. And I guess until you either have the ability or someone there to take a look at the work that you're doing and say, why are you doing it like this? Because you, the stuff that you're doing just gets so day-to-day and almost becomes so mundane for you to do that you just do it. And um, I, I even think still as a as someone quite seasoned in DevOps, I don't think you realise that yourself about your own workflow still. I think it still takes someone else to, from the outside to say, yeah, but, you know, ask you that fundamental why question. Why are you doing it like this? And, you know, it was, it was even some quite simple stuff that, um, we, we highlighted that we were going to start, um, working on before coronavirus come up, which was, you know, the, the, these, the guys in this team get, I don't know how many it was. I can't remember. So, so many incidents with disperse alerts and everyone they deal with the same. And it's like, well, so why don't we put that list of five things into some form of automation that gets runs auto, that gets run automatically off the service now ticket? If it resolves it, great, we close the ticket down automatically. If not, it still comes to you for investigation, uh, and that would close off. I don't know. 
something like 70, 80, you know, maybe even more percent of, of those tickets. And, and all of a sudden, that's a huge amount more time that that team's got to work on other more qualitative stuff than the repeatable stuff. And I think that's the one, that's one of the, where when you get into a motion of DevOps and you start looking at process improvements and that's, that's where you actually start to see the biggest gains in a team's work, not really all the other stuff. And, and it obviously helps and builds foundations and puts a framework in place to be able to do that. But it's not until you start looking at the work you're doing and say, well, why, why are we doing it like this? Why don't we do it a different way? That's when you start seeing all of the benefits of, of all of that stuff coming into play. I, I totally agree. And, it, and it's interesting because, um, as you know, we, we kind of started off um, <laughs> from a, a grassroots position with with, with the resources, you know, with only those resources we, we already had and, and no, you know, uh, targeted or, or dedicated money. So it was a case of kind of cutting our cloth and, and figuring out the best places to start. And it's quite a natural starting point, certainly from somebody who's come from a development background, which is, which is with my journey, um, is to start in those change delivery teams and focus on people like developers and testers and you know and there is no doubt and I'm sure you know you'll agree that, that we made good progress with those teams and we've got good level of repeatability and off-the-shelf templateability if you like in those teams but with hindsight um, I, I you know uh, I probably if I was doing it again would actually start the other side of the fence I'd probably start with some of those Ops teams that you've described. I mean, early doors, we recognised, largely because I've read it in the Phoenix project, that you need to have InfoSec on board, right? Security. And so we were always, that was one of the ops teams that, that we had targeted from day one. And we got to a really good place with them very early. You know, they were providing security champions into teams and helping with those um, delivery teams. And that's great. But the sticking point is the one you've described was with those teams, those ops teams who were just so bogged down in the reality of their day to day. That, that, you know, despite a willingness to be involved in, and, and an acknowledgement that, that they, you know, they get it, they understand why you want to do this. The reality is, oh, but my backlog's so big, my, you know, my, my queue in service now, not using the term backlog, my queue in service now means I don't have time to do this stuff and I've got to work through that first. Um, and, you know, um, it's all very well and good talking about things like lean and then using that to, to inform what it is you automate. And that's almost obvious in delivery teams because you're already working almost. It, it's a small push towards that mindset. Uh, it's much less obvious for teams working in that more traditional ops sense who are working against you know, CMDBs and ticketing systems and so on. It's less obvious that it's exactly the same ask and the same challenge. And fundamentally, the first thing you need to do with those teams is go, look, have you all got visibility of a backlog in a uniform kind of way and in a way that is transparent across all the people in, you know, um, who, who should care, um, which is something you think more naturally about from the delivery side, because you're already talking to the business and all that kind of stuff. And obviously not. So you're in, you're, you're already hampered by having a siloed point of view, um, even though it's the same challenge. Um, so start, you know, if I, if I had my time again, I, I would start with those people first, solve that problem, help, help figure out those automations in the way you described, you know, in the ticketing system or whatever it is, because then it's almost, it's almost trivial to then go and do that in the delivery teams. You know, um, you've dealt with the bigger blocker first. Yeah, I, I agree. And I, I think when you look at 
<laughs> you know, let's uh, let's boil it down to its very basic elements: DevOps, Dev and Ops. I I think it it just comes very naturally to developers to do this kind of thing. That that's why they just get it and they start doing it. Whereas, uh, I think it was last week I was talking about this uh, with uh, Karima, who was the guest last week. That one of the challenges you have in Ops is that. Um, and it's nothing to do with the individuals in operations. It's nothing to do with the leaders. It's just to do with how ops works that, you know, they are, what, what they care about is so different to what dev care about. You know, devs want to move faster. Um, ops want to keep the lights on, maintain availability. You know, you, you talk to, you talk to a lot of operational teams. Uh, and I don't, I don't specifically, yeah, uh, I mean, in, in this, but in any of the teams that I've worked with anywhere operationally, innovation is not something that comes natural to them in terms of innovating how they work. Um, whereas you could talk to most operational teams and leaders about their KPIs and their Q-size system availability, all, all of the metrics, that they'd have them straight away because that's, that's their world. And I, I think, yeah, if you target those teams first, um, you know, the ones that are harder to engage with and the ones that are harder to win the hearts and minds of to do this thing, then, you know, heading over to the dev teams to be able to do this is, is, is almost pretty simple because you'll have got through most of the headaches that you'll, you'll come across before you even get to, uh, doing the dev teams where they will just naturally pick it up and, and it's a very natural way for them to work. Yeah, well, there's there's a benefit of hindsight for you, but, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> definitely. So so moving on a little bit, this is a this is kind of a two part um thing really. So yeah, obviously you look at material out there on DevOps. There is material specifically that talks about DevOps. There's material that specifically talks about enterprise DevOps. Now, what exactly do we mean by enterprise DevOps? Is is point one and how how does DevOps differ between your smaller teams, you know, maybe like your four or five engineering teams at your startup to a, a an enterprise organization? Um, how does it differ between the team sizes Are you experience in both organizations? And, and yeah, what what do we actually mean by enterprise DevOps? Um, so um, <laughs> it's a big question. It's an enterprise size question. Um, uh, I guess. You know, there's a there's a there's a dry technical answer, I think, and there's a there's a more interesting answer. If I yeah, if I'm giving the as briefly as I can the dry technical answer, I think it's uh, it's uh, practices and toolings across a couple of dimensions. Um, firstly, the kind of dimension of repeatability and scalability. Um, obviously, that that order of magnitude is 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 very different to you know a, a smaller. Um, organization um, and, and even when I think way back in time you know, certainly before I was working at Virgin maybe when I was you know, I spent 10 years working in um, special effects film broadcast media uh, where I was doing you know workflow guy um, and creating in-house systems and all that kind of stuff and without knowing it I was doing a bunch of stuff that was DevOps there in very small teams and it's very easy to to by default exhibit a lot of the behaviors that you'd expect in a mature DevOps team because you're a small team and you can pivot and change. You can make decisions and you are the person on the hook when things go, things go bang. And if you're in a, you know, a, a post-production 
a house or a, you know, a small special effects boutique. Normally those are co- companies of a few hundred people who tend to work till midnight on a, on a shoot or doing special effects or come in on a weekend, you know, and, um, and do coding at beat, you know, it's not, it, it was completely usual for me to be in on, in Soho on a Saturday night at 10 PM, um, doing some coding before then popping down for a, a pint, you know, and then popping back in to go and do some more work. That's, that's often how it be. And, and you can be super DevOps in that kind of environment. Of course, it's, it's a completely different, uh, di- different when you're talking about, um, that, that, that scalability and repeatability at a much bigger level. The second of those di- uh, dimensions is around, I think, the connected visibility. And when I describe the DevOps as just one of a number of uh, techniques or, you know, methodologies or however you want to term it, that, uh, that, that in the round give you the solution, you know, the agility, the lean, the DevOps, the flow, um, the enterprise uh, management. Um, then connected visibility is something you absolutely have to have um, at the enterprise level. Um, that perhaps doesn't have anywhere near the, the same scale of impact in a smaller organization. But of course, you still need to be able to be aware of the end-to-end in a smaller organization. So what do I mean by that? Um, uh, um, that that's value stream delivery tools. Um, so, you know, your, I guess the, the tools um, that, that have licensing implications and repeatability implications and so on. So, um, you know, you could be a Microsoft house and be focused on Azure DevOps, for example. Um, and there might be a reason for doing that rather than having a load of, uh, you know, open source, uh, self-install tooling on all sorts of kit, right, which clearly, you know, needs to be better managed at the enterprise and you don't care about managing in, in a small organization. And you've also got the value stream management tools, so the stuff that connects up all that data and allows you to see all the way from the big ticket decisions that are being made by the C-suite and the executives in your big room planning around the, the full portfolio of capital spend for the year um, and how those decisions are being value scored against some set of corporate measures, how that then trickles down into value streams and programs of work and manifests itself as work items on individual discrete Kanbans down in teams that themselves are then leading to work that is generating metrics, either in terms of the metrics around the the pipeline and the infrastructure or the metrics about the value that's been generated by that stuff that you've deployed. So, you know, those are the things that you yeah that, that, that are I think inherently different between the large and the small, um, but that's kind of the try answer. I think I think the real answer is more to do with architecture and strategy, and and by architecture I, I mean the literal use of the word architecture. You know uh, the creative artistic sense of the word. Uh, it's about you know uh, the culture, the people, the process, then the technology. Obviously you talk about that a lot. It's about the stuff that. You also talk about Simon Sinek. It's, it's about, you know, the difference between the infinite, um, the why and the tactical steps and the fact that's a journey. And at an enterprise, that's just much more complicated and much more, you know, and, uh, and requires uh, much more thought than, than perhaps you need to do in a small organization. Um, it's about the capabilities that um, generate the values and the outcome and expressing those through technology um, in a way that, again, is, is just more complicated because of the complexity of your landscape, both technical and business. Um, it's about the, the myriad of platforms 
or, or actually trying to reduce the myriad platforms um, that you need to be able to support that. That could be cloud and all that stuff. Um, it's around the, the core teams and uh, uh, tooling platforms um, are also capabilities in that sense and should align and integrate in exactly the same way and against the same frameworks. So everything you're applying to your delivery portfolio uh, and the platforms that you're delivering on um, should also apply to the, the supporting core platforms. You know, that you know, I talked about Azure DevOps, for example, um, or the Microsoft Power Platform, but it could be AWS, it could be whatever it is. Um, and then empowering the teams to give you the right bits in the right order across, you know, those uh, domains of agility, lean, DevOps, etc. I described earlier. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen a show on Netflix called Abstract. Um, That's not actually, I keep getting told to watch it. Wow, <laughs> it's it's a it's a fan, it's it's not a tech show at all. Um, it's uh it's a it's a show, it's a documentary show about design, um, and and every week they have a different you know, uh, design specialist on. And there's a particular episode with a guy called Bjark Ingels who, who's um, created a a, a a Swedish architecture. Uh, company called Big, um, and and he's yeah it's a fantastic episode. But he talks about the Pompidou Centre in France. I don't know if you've seen that building. Um, it, it's got, it, it's the building that's got all the infrastructure on the outside of the building, yeah. all the pipes, all the all the cabling, everything yeah. on the outside. Um, and 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 it's a perfect analogy for for how DevOps helps should help inform and and, and generate the outcomes. Um, that, that that you want um, for a big en enterprise. Um, so so he talks about when when the literal architects were designing that building, it, it's you know it's 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 the mindset that, that you want within your your in house you know enterprise technology and DevOps folks. It's the first question should be, what's the ongoing use of the end building, right? That's the first question. The second question is, what is the culture brand style of the building around? which that community is built, you know, what's the building going to be used for? Um, what are the daily activities now and in the future that the building must support? Uh, and then you, and only then do you get into design questions. What are the design choices that support everything I've just said? And finally, what are the engineering decisions that support the design choices and give you the additional benefits? So in the case of the Pompidou Centre, the pipes and the wires are on the outside of the building, and that makes it much easier um, for the the ongoing you know operational support the engineers the daily the cleaners everybody else um the the, the people who are making deliveries to the building etc to come and support that building and in doing that they then drive better outcomes for the customers who are inside the Pompidou center making use of of that space internally and I, for me that's a, it's a beautiful analogy of how devops and architecture and strategy can all come together to get to what you really need to do, which ultimately is, is, is drive outcomes that have a valued return, either for the, the external customer in Virgin's case, you know, the, the, the people who are going to pay money to, you know, who've got a choice to go on a number of airlines, which structurally are all quite similar and all do the same thing, but it's the experience of flying with Virgin Atlantic that, that gets them to pay money to be on, to be on the plane. So, so, what can we do 
to achieve that outcome. And, and that's, that's how DevOps can support the journey. So that's, that's, so that's my long rambling answer. But, but I, you know, for me, it's, it, it's, you know, it, it's, it's much more about that, that end game, that, that end outcome, but it is about, you know, the, the internal structurings and mechanisms of the technology. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. And there's some good references there for anyone that's not um, seen the show. I'm definitely going to check it out, though, because it's been on my to-watch list on Netflix for a long, long time. Um, and, yeah, if no one's checked out that building, definitely uh, check it out on uh, your favourite search engine of choice because it's an amazing... <laughs> building to look at and think you know why, why did they come to that decision and then read upon the architects and read upon the building uses and stuff it's a great it's great learning i, I, I tell you I, I mean this is a this is a particular you know um hobby topic of mine uh, obviously i mentioned simon sinek as, as you have done many times before uh and uh, yeah people aren't familiar with him they should get familiar with him um and um, you know, there's there's another guy whose name eludes me, but who was who used to be editor of of Wired magazine. He, he's written a book um, uh, talking about innovation in technology. But again, to illustrate it, he uses he uses a load of again literal building architecture examples. Um, you know, I think he talks about the the Savoy Hotel, um, and the Savoy Hotel had to add several stories of. Um, uh, that's redesigned the building and add several stories of effectively what would be um, engineering equipment room, so um, air, air conditioning and so on. Um, but but because it's such an old design of building, um, that, you know, uh, that they couldn't yeah, they couldn't um, interrupt and rip out all this stuff without shutting the building down for, for two three years. They couldn't add it onto the top of the building because of uh, paying constraints and structurally the way the building was designed. The only place they could put it was under the building and the building was already on a floating concrete platform. Uh, and, and basically they talk about, uh, about how, engineer, how engineers and technologists use uh, an iterative DevOps approach to effectively excavating the whole building out for a one meter squared hole in the floor um, and, and refloating the entire building and putting all this technology underneath without shutting the building down for a single day. Um, so, I, you know, there's, there's loads of this stuff out there. And, and I think it's interesting because I think from a technology perspective, we have all been hampered by having a, a view of the world that is, if you like, a, you know, a, a view that, that that's come through the way um, the, the evolution of mainframes and then the big companies like like you know, IBM and, and HP and so on that only got disrupted in terms of its approach to thinking and mindset by you know the big fan companies Google and so on um, and so most technologies or most organizations haven't had experience of using and applying a way of thinking that has been commonplace in building architecture and design for 50 60 70 80 years you know, there's nothing new we're doing. It's just new to technology. Yeah. Uh, so, you know. Yeah, I, I, I kind of think this fundamentally boils down to two things that we talk about a lot in DevOps: scalability and repeatability. And, and just you see your numbers, right? If you know, the, uh, a long time ago when uh, you know the unfortunate events of uh, September 11th happened, there's quite a movement online talking about there being a conspiracy theory 
uh, are, are various conspiracy theories, but one of them is that the building was um, wired with explosives. Um, and this is one that I've seen on TV documentaries before. And one of the things that instantly blew that out of the water for me, no, <laughs> no really bad pun intended, um, was that just the sheer number of people that would have to have known about that and be kept quiet about that just doesn't float for me. Uh, and I, I kind of, you know, <laughs> stay with me on this, applying this into, um, you know, DevOps in the enterprise and, and why we don't see many large enterprises at least be successful at DevOps, you know, to the outside world. How, you know, if, if you're your smaller teams working on this stuff and, you know, you've got it covered because there's maybe 10, 15 of you. But if you're an enterprise, there's potentially hundreds of people that need to be on point and stay on point with it. Yeah. And that's really difficult to do. So I think there's just generally a scalability and repeatability yeah. thing there. And that, that kind of leads me to think that, you know, other than three obvious examples, Microsoft, Google and Amazon, there are actually very few enterprises yeah. that do DevOps well. Um, so, so I, I, you know, I, I, I think you're absolutely right. And, and actually, uh, I, I don't think your example's tenuous at all. I think, I think it's really spot on. And actually, you, you, know, you brought my thinking back on track because, um, you, you know, you, you asked, you asked me a two-part question, and, and the second part was about those smaller teams versus the bigger teams. Um, and, um, the, you know, I, you know, I talked about there, there is that tension, that difference between uh, what you want for individual teams of. Uh, in an enterprise versus what you need for small teams in a small organization. Uh, and at the enterprise, you care about things like contracts, licenses, metrics, ecosystem level, rather than necessarily the best tools selected by the, by the team for the team. Uh, but you also care about the dependencies with other streams um, and to coin a, um, somebody else's term, not mine, the blast radius between what each of those teams um, uh, is able to do and can have an impact on. And that in turn, has an implication for, you know, how you record things in your config tool, you know, your CMDB, your change management stuff and so on. Um, and, and the barriers to doing that stuff are so huge in an enterprise that, like you, I don't believe for a nanosecond that it would be possible to conspire to blow up that building in the way you describe, um, um, not to labour the point of that example, um, you know, um, without already being at an extremely mature, a level of maturity that only those few select companies have managed to achieve over many years. It's just not feasible. Um, you know, uh, in an organization like the one we've been in, you know, funding models dictate things, um, and they mean that you aren't necessarily configured to be, you know, you build it, you run it. Um, and, and, and you therefore have to find tactical approaches to, to, to get you some of the way there. So, so, you know, to use that example, if, 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 if our funding doesn't support us being built and run, then the next best thing is to find ways to lower the barriers between handoff between a, a more traditional change team into a more traditional run team. Um, you know, and at that point you're into, um, you know, what I believe is called the DevOps advocacy pattern. Um, again, side note for your listeners, if you're not aware of it, there's a, a website called devopstopologies.com that gives you loads of these patterns. Um, and DevOps advocacy is the one that, that we started out with, um, as you, as you well know, Martin, at Virgin Atlantic, where, you know, we've got, we've got our legacy delivery teams, we've got our legacy run teams. How can we begin to bridge the gap 
well, we stick a team in the middle to help support those conversations and then have them drop out when those teams get to a level of autonomy, if you like, and can do it themselves. So I think you've got so many of these kind of challenges at the enterprise level that I'm not saying don't exist in a small organisation, but are much easier to address in a small organisation. Um, I think your, your, your conspiracy point is, is very well made. Uh. Moving away from conspiracies to uh, elephants in the room. Um, yes. So, so specifically, I, I've not really talked about this much given what's been going on at the minute, but uh, in any episode really. But you know, I've I, I've been mulling this over quite a lot recently, and I I, I have a theory, and I obviously like to think I'm right, but I'd like to see it proved or disproved, and the reasons why. And it's definitely something I'm gonna follow up as we start to recover out of uh, COVID-19 over hopefully the next year or so. Um, you know, my belief is that if, if you're a, a mature DevOps organization, um, you know, thinking about your end product to the, to the rest of the world, if, you, if what's behind the scenes is mature and, and delivering fast and safely, um, and you're learning all the time, you know, my, my theory is that as a company, you will recover quicker post COVID-19 and an organization that is still traditionally a waterfall where, you know, bits are still a little bit all over the place. There's so many things involved. You know, I, where I think that, that theory comes from is that the stuff we were just talking about, you know, the people that are good at DevOps barring the three main big software vendors are generally pretty small companies and you know, a lot of the companies that I um, used to work with that started doing a, a lot of this stuff were disruptors in their space because of the adoption of DevOps. So, you know, thinking of people like Uber, Airbnb, Deliveroo, Just Eat, all of these kind of people, they, they, they didn't start off as massive companies, but they had a really great idea that had never been seen before in their space. Yes, they're all fundamentally technology companies. But they were small teams to start with. They don't have all of that legacy that an enterprise has. You know, to be an enterprise, you've probably been around at least 10 years or so, and the size of your company will reflect that. Um, but you don't have all of the baggage that comes with being an enterprise, like all the legacy systems, uh, you know, dare I say it, legacy people sometimes. You know, all, all of those things conspire against you. So... I, I do believe that those organisations that are good at practising DevOps will be quicker, uh, will recover a lot quicker after COVID-19 because they're able to react to the market so much better and so much quicker. I, 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 I think you're right, and, I, and it's interesting. I think, um, you know, I, I'm, clearly, I'm making a bunch of assumptions here because I've never worked for, you know, for example, Uber. But, but you know, you, you've started with. Um, a clear and very focused why um, in, in that case, um, and um, the technology uh, was very well aligned to that why, and what you're doing is scaling out um, the same thing um, you know, many times as you scale the organization focused on the same why, rather than trying to chop up a big enterprise which maybe doesn't have a clarity on its why or has it worse divergent whys and a divergent landscape and trying to make repeatable something that can't be repeated in a very complicated landscape and as you know at Virgin Atlantic there's no way we could get to, we could ever have had our you know inaugural uh, PI big room first planning event back in 
January had we not got to the stage in the last year and a half where, um, uh, you know, our, uh, our new CEO was able to state a clear unifying why for the organization, um, you know, which, which for Virgin Atlantic was, you know, to be the most loved for the customer, um, you know, and internally for everybody to feel the most loved. And that gave, you know, it sounds very fluffy up on that level, but, but you know, as well as I do, because you work through the, the nuance of the detail of what that means, all the lines of the organization, including technology, were able to clearly articulate and align themselves against that high-level why statement. And that suddenly gave everybody an impetus and a common goal and allowed, allowed us to have, you know, something against which we could have a common set of uh, measures. And at that point, only then, at, you know, at an organization the size of ours, could you begin to meaningfully move from a top-down perspective towards alignment, you know, um, you know, beyond the small games we made at bottom-up. Whereas, as you say, your, your smaller organizations have the advantage of already starting, clearly focused on the why, and then they're just scaling at that point. Yeah, and it's, it's almost coming through, and an enterprise level, it's almost like coming through and unpicking lots of what's been done before and the messaging from various different leaders to, you know, really say this is this is what we want to do and this is what we need to do when everyone needs to be on board with it. I think that's where the difficulty comes in at an enterprise level, definitely compared to those smaller organisations that are just by definition more more agile. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that that actually leads us really nicely into the to the last point, really, which is what what are the main challenges of DevOps in the enterprise, and and how do we go about solving some of those challenges? So, so some of the things that I, I was thinking about when I was making notes were. You know, we, we all know the, the individuals in, in various organizations that align to this, but there's the, well, I wrote this application. It is my application. Only I make updates to this application and no one else is, you know, these are my skill sets. I don't want to learn anything new. This is what I do, et cetera, et cetera. And then there's the, the there's the change in thinking, you know, there's either you build it, you run it, which is sometimes doesn't doesn't work for various different reasons, but I think more broadly just working in a product function. So, you know, that, that product function may still have ultimately you build it, you you run it mentality in there. But I think that product function that moves away from projects in the, you know, we 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 actually have the classic you know, set up to be able to do this if, if you know, if various different stars align to be able to do this at Virgin Atlantic. We have various different software teams that could quite easily, you know, the amount of work that they have to do and that needs doing in some of those apps that they write, they could quite easily be made product teams. Um, but there's the rest of the organization that still works in a project world. There's budgets that don't work out there. There's all kinds of stuff, procurement. There's, there's all kinds of things that don't align for that to work well. So, you know, those were some of the points that I was, I was thinking of. But what, you know, what, what do you think some of the main challenges are of DevOps in the enterprise? Well, well, it's interesting. I mean, I've got a clear view of, of, you know, uh, the problem, what the problems are, and then you know the, the challenges towards solving those. Uh, um, uh, um, but I also think there's some good news actually. I mean, we, we've talked a bit about COVID, uh, and, I, uh, and I, I do want to come back to that because I think um, some of the challenges we've we faced as an organisation as a consequence of lockdown um, have the potential 
to kickstart us a bit further on on that journey. Um, so, it, I mean, in terms of the problems, obviously, we've talked about silos within the organisation, so divisional silos, if you like. Um, we've, you've got all the, the, the legacy tech and, and just all the tech, you know, uh, um, you know too much tech. Um, uh, we've got unaligned projects, or historically we had unaligned, pro- un- unaligned projects. We had repetition with overlapping solutions. Um, we had um, a repetition of capabilities, so multiple multiple platforms and tools that had overlapping capabilities, um, and we'd only ever be using a portion of any one of those things. So you've, you've got you've got that. I mean, each of those is owned by a different division. Um, you've got the business view of, you know, uh, um, trust um, and trust in technology's ability to deliver or deliver in a timely way anyway, um, that often or historically would be resolved with credit cards. Um, I remember when we had, uh, at the top of this talk, I talked about um, that, that big transformation um, in technology um, that, that um, led to us replacing more a raft of our back-end ticketing systems, but also our, our digital channels. Um, and at that time, I needed to do, as the architect, I needed to do an analysis of all the um, all the websites we had spun up externally. And I think at one point, the spreadsheet totaled 800 different marketing microsites that have been spun up on credit card, right? Um, and that, and that's, that's what happens. Um, you've got demand outstripping the ability to deliver. Um, with business cases that are never, you know, necessarily held to account or not against the original business case. Uh, and then this thing about ownership. You've got, you've got um, you know, owners of skill, owners of knowledge, of systems. These are all single points of failure with people holding on to that. And what you don't have fundamentally is capability-based thinking. Um, but also worse than that, you, don't, you know, you have loads of people hanging on to their secret source knowledge because, you know, People, you know, are thinking about their jobs or, or their, you know, um, their, their position and so on. Um, and, and, and I think that's a misplaced view of the world. Actually, I think if you can move people into capability-based thinking, then you give people the opportunity to upskill and, and, and spend more of their time doing higher-value, innovative stuff. Right. Um, so, you know, you've got to get people on that journey. But, but I think the other piece of ownership that, that sometimes is forgotten is the ownership that people don't want, which is the ownership of quality. Um, and, and if you're going to get, you know, better value, sooner, safer, happier, to, you know, to quote a phrase that, that um, is, is, you know, strong and out there at the moment, um, you need people to proactively own the quality of what they're doing. Quality isn't something that sits with testers or QA. It sits with the people who are building the thing and the people who are making the choices about what the builders are going to build, uh, uh, you know, uh, and everybody in that chain. So there's the ownership piece. So, so some of the challenges in addressing those problems, well, you talked about funding, you know, traditional CapEx versus OpEx funding models, which is not the same as, you know, capacity based, which is what you really need to get you on a starting point from, to, to, you know, for a, a you build it, you run it team. And even then, I'm not sure capacity based is the right way. That's a trolling challenge. You know, we haven't necessarily solved in our organisation on that journey. You talked about the project-centric view. I agree with that. We need to move away from the project-centric view onto products supported by platforms, you know, supported by and owned by capabilities 
um, you know, that um, are aligned to value streams that can deliver value and outcomes based on the why, you know, all the way up to you know, joining up the grassroots all the way up to that big picture C-suite enterprise thinking, um, you know, um, uh, uh, and you know, the challenges there are breaking down Conway's law, the, the, the processes and communication channels that have arisen as a consequence of those silos in the business that we described and being focused on process rather than outcome and having to smash that up and ask people to forget their process that they've nurtured for years, that's protected and kept their high risk environment safe and think about actually what it is we need as an outcome and take that as your approach to redesign your process. Um, you know, ways of working, it's not a one-off training issue. You can't just send people on a, you know, a, a Scrum a CSM course or whatever. Well, you can do, but I'd suggest you're wasting your money. We've wasted our money doing that a lot. You know, what you really need is repeated hands-on eyes support by people who you've, you know, if you like, coaches or enablers or however you want to term it, people whose job it is to be in there day in, day out and help focus on those percentage gains and tinker in the teams to say, well, we could tweak this in this team, but I now need in the dev team. Um, but that's all I'm going to tweak because before I tweak anything else in the dev team, dev team, I need to go and tweak something commensurate over in the ops team and in the security team and so on. So that's that's a challenge and being able to fund that is a challenge. Um, and then who pays? <laughs> that's, that's the biggest yeah. challenge. You know, um, you know, um, uh, I was in a, a debate with cross-industry colleagues only this week um, about business owners asking who should be paying for uh, the non-feature stuff and why should I allow that non-feature stuff to be in my a reserve, a permanent reserve in my commit for my sprint, right? Um, but, but sometimes, and, and you know, this this is a this is this was stated as one of our, if you like, MVP. Uh, target outcomes for our first big room planning event, Martin. Um, it, it was sometimes you go slower to go faster. And if that means features versus platform health, you know, that, that works. That works not only at the product level in a delivery team to ensure that you've got, you know, uh, a good balance of tech debt versus feature, features versus hygiene maintenance of your product. And it is a balance, you know. Uh, but you need to ensure you've got that commit. But that works up at the macro level as well as the micro, up at the enterprise level. It's exactly the same thinking. There's nothing you're doing down at that team level that is anything different to what you're trying to do with a room full of, you know, enterprise level, if you like, roles uh, in, in a big room planning event. Um, and that, and by the way, that underlying health isn't just technical health of the platform. It's technical health. It's, it's people health of the people who are, who are the capability that is supporting that platform, their training, their ability to, to hands-on do rather than just learn the CSM certificate or whatever it is, um, their thinking time um, to be able to pause and to be able to own the quality and to be able to innovate and so on. I'm not, I'm not saying we've cracked all these problems at Virgin, but we've, you know, we've made inroads on that journey directionally in the right way. Uh, and that's what gets you to this idea away from projects and away from silos and so on too. You know, products and platforms are, are you know, and capabilities and, and value streams and all that kind of stuff. Um, I think, you know, I think in terms of the, the COVID thing, obviously, you know, We've suffered a huge amount of impacts, well, nationally, 
globally everybody's been impacted and uh and, and you know and, and some in awful ways with bereavement and so on and i'm very sensitive to that but as an airline just as a, as a business if you like we've been directly impacted um obviously well we've during this period um we, we had a flurry of activity of, of of trying to relocate if you like passengers stranded you know um down leg at their destinations and bring them back uh, home um, uh, uh, and, and people going back um, to, to their homes uh, outside of the UK. Um, so, so all, all of our flying programme essentially uh, you know, had been stripped down to basically cargo uh, flying and bringing in NHS you know, equipment and all that stuff, which is which is great. But obviously, that's that 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 that, that had big impacts on our organisation. And, and during the crisis, you know, we had like everybody huge numbers of people furloughed um and, and so the you know and, and then the people who are working doing a lot more work and and you know i've not been furloughed mine you've been furloughed and we're we're on different sides of the fence uh, in, in that sense but for both of us you know we've got children we you know mental wellness is a thing exercise is a thing you know if you're working because you're not furloughed well, you're in a different working environment. You've probably not got an ergonomic chair. Uh, you're probably sat there for far longer than you would be if you were getting up and walking to meetings and out the cooler. Um, uh, and in your world, Martin, I know you're focused on doing, you know, um, all this stuff with, with the podcast and so on. Um, and you know, uh, you know, uh, you know, you have to, you know, you have to take care of yourself physically and mentally um, in terms of what's been going on in the organisation during this phase. You know, we've, we've had to freeze a portfolio and our spend. We've had to, you know, the impact of that is on knowledge retention suppliers, uh, maintaining oper operational stability during a period of heightened risk, stressed infrastructure, all these things. But here's the thing. The response to that we, we had, as you know, uh, in our organisation, we had a collective response. We had people, op, you know, opting in before FOLO came in from the government. 96% of our organisation opted in to, to taking unpaid leave. Now, that kind of collective responsibility is something you dream of when you're trying to put a DevOps team together, right? Yeah. So yeah. How, how can we leverage that? We should leverage that. We should take that, that collective spirit and leverage that when we begin to scale back up, you know. Um, We've had teams that previously needed to work together offsite being forced to work together in a high performing way remotely over teams. You know, whoever thought that would happen, you know. Um, and so we need to take that and use that when we go forward. You know, we've had, you know, you talked about some of the, the operational teams who, who um, were, were stimmed with the stuff they needed to automate from their service now queue. Well, you know, we saw, you know, those same teams, uh, you know, previously had a, an, uh, had a you know a plan to roll out teams across the organization microsoft teams um and i think on one of your previous podcasts you had a guest um who i think you work with at, at um in sono and he used he used a, i think he used a welsh a welsh phrase and i can't remember the word he used um, uh yeah yeah anthony that was yeah yeah, uh, yeah. so, so the, the phrase he used i loved it i loved what he said he talked about uh complicated versus complex right yeah. And, and so this team, this operational team, it was supposed to roll out teams. They originally had, and it's complicated and it needs a big plan view of the team's rollout. And that was going to take two years. Well, guess what? As soon as we went into furlough and we had to have everybody working remotely, that plan got turned from an it's complicated and needs a big plan plan into a it's complex. Let's deal with it iteratively and from an MVP approach and then improve it. And they rolled out the whole thing to the whole organization stable in two weeks. 
So look at the lesson learned now. There's a mindset pivot there. People have been forced to step outside their role profile mentality. The this is my job. I'm a developer. I do this to the T-shaped mentality. I need to wear many hats because I've got to cover loads of roles and we're working remotely or I'm furloughed and now I've got a load of new stuff I need to do because I'm signed up to be an NHS responder or I'm doing a podcast or whatever, you know, or our cabin crew who, who are now, you know, in their downtime doing voluntary work at the Nightingale Hospital or or they've moved, you know, doing uh, work at Sainsbury's or whatever they're doing. So I think there's loads and loads of, you know, if you like, silver linings to this awful crisis that, that, that are so tightly connected with the, the ethos and the mentality of DevOps that, that you know, we, we'd be fools not to take those as our springboard and, and help us move forward. Now, there's a difference between being able to do that and, you know, and actually acting on it. So that's, that's the trick. But there's an interesting piece of research that was done in 2010 after the last, um, you know, uh, uh, global recession of the 2007 um, uh, uh, you know, mortgage-driven um, catastrophe, um, and the paper's called "Roaring Out Recession" by um, I've got the name written here, Galati Noria, and I'm going to try and pronounce this name, Wolgazogan. So these, these three folks uh, create this paper called "Roaring Out Recession," um, and it's a marketing paper. It's, it's for marketing folks, um, really, a lot of this stuff. But fundamentally, it, 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 there's hard evidence coming out of that re- recession that shows progressive companies. We, who have focused on new mechanisms to get their production capabilities, initiative, incremental and out there, uh, that are focused on allowing their products to be highly available and to innovate meaningfully and to do so quickly, are the, are the companies that recover, the only ones that are guaranteed to recover, and the ones that recover the best. So to your point, you know, um, DevOps absolutely is a springboard to recovery from this catastrophe um, and you know um, the, the overcoming those challenges of DevOps whether you're a small or enterprise level uh, you know and maybe using some of the things that you've learned during you know the, the, the pandemic um, as a springboard to help you accelerate and drive the facing those challenges of DevOps are, are the things that are going to give you the best chance of, of success as an organization um, yeah, other, I, opinions, I, other opinions are available <laughs> There's, there's, uh, it's slightly, slightly unrelated, but a few people have, have said to me, obviously, you know, when I called you, do you think Bayesian will get through this? And, and without hesitation, every time someone's asked, no matter what's been happening in the world, you know, whether we were voting to take unpaid leave, looking at um, fellow redundancies that were announced um, in the media not that long ago, every time without fail, I've said, yeah, absolutely. And when they've asked why, you know, obviously it's like, well, why? It doesn't look good from the outside. It's like, well, no, it doesn't. But I said there are three things at Bergen. There are three values you're, you're taught when you start your reduction. It's, you know, think red, be amazing, and make friends. And I said, everyone in the organisation that does that, I said, I looked at those and looked at the meanings behind them. You get them on printed love hands when you start, and a little folding card uh, that slots into your ID badge. And uh, I, I talked to people about those, and they said, you know, those, those three points are, you know, what I would want to do if I was building a DevOps team. And there are things in there that I would just want to bottle up and, yeah. and, and take to build a team. And I said, 
the fact that everyone in the organisation feels that way uh, about such a big organisation, really, uh, and, you know, such a, you know, in a lot of ways, a, a monolithic organisation, uh, aviation doesn't really change that much, yeah. <laughs> ultimately. But anyone that flies with Virgin knows that it's, they're quite a special airline to fly with when it comes to, you know, customer experience and onboard experience. And, and because of all those things, I, I've said time and time again, this is why they will come out with this, a stronger organisation and like every organisation in the world is learning to do, they will adapt and they will come out stronger. Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. I think those are the things that, you know, uh, lots of organisations can look at bottle up within their own organisations and take out and come out with it, you know, not just this crisis, but other crises, whether they're global or whether they're industry affecting and come out a lot, lot stronger. Yeah, yeah. And, and back and, you know, back to the thing you've you've repeated many times on on your podcast series, it's you know, culture and people first. Technology is is, is yeah, way it's important. It's an enabler, yeah. but it's just an enabler for the culture and the people bit, right? Uh, yeah. And if you if you bottle that, I think you're you're most away way there. Everything else is just you know tech solutioning. You know, yeah, well, definitely. We, we can all do that, or in my case, could do that. <laughs> I'm a bit rusty, <laughs> <laughs> but you know. <laughs> so we've uh, we've run out of time. Uh, it feels like we could uh, carry on going for, for quite a while on a, a subject like this, but we, we have run out of time. Um, and coincidentally, uh, well, maybe coincidentally, I'll let um, people that are listening make this uh, find up for themselves. Uh, next week um, in episode 10, when we hit double figures, uh, I'm talking to uh, a lady called April Edwards, uh, who's quite a good friend of mine. Um, she's a senior software engineer at Microsoft, and we're going to be talking about how Microsoft do DevOps. Um, so, so when we were mentioning earlier on around the organisation, you know, free organisations I can think of can do this. We'll talk to someone at one of those organisations next week that will hopefully be able to give us some insights into. You, you know, the the what, why, and the how. So uh, that should be uh, really, really good. So definitely looking forward to speaking to her about that. Um, so so for this week, that, that wraps us up. Um, so all that leaves me to do really is to uh, say thanks again to Nick for joining us this week. And um, to everyone else, uh, thank you again for listening and hope you can join us all soon. But until next time, goodbye for now.